Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every podcast I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Louis Siegelbaum about his new book, Cars for Comrades, The Life of the Soviet Automobile. A recent editorial in the Moscow Times declared that, in Moscow, the car is king. Indeed, one word Moscovites constantly mutter is probka, or traffic jam. The boom in car ownership is transforming Russian life, and for some, not necessarily for the better. Quote, the joy of personal mobility has completely eclipsed the value of community life but the joy of car ownership has long ceased being a joy and has instead become a burden, end quote. While the detrimental effects of the car have only recently hit Russia, the automobile's political, economic, and cultural significance dates from the early Soviet period. What the Soviets called automobilism had multiple meanings. It represented a particular Soviet modernity rooted in industrialism, technology, and the efficiency of the socialist system. It also meant state power, and during the Great Terror in particular, the secret police. But the car also signified freedom, individuality, and leisure. The Soviet car may have been an unattainable luxury for the vast majority of Soviet citizens, but its effects on the Soviet imagination were deep and long-lasting. So without further delay, here's my interview with Louis Siegelbaum. Hi, Louis. Hello, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, Cars for Comrades, The Life of the Soviet Automobile. My pleasure. Just to begin uh, the interview, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay. Um, I was born in New York um, and raised in the sylvan suburbs of Long Island. And uh, I uh, was a little unusual in my neighborhood in that um, my parents, particularly my father, uh, was uh, very politically active and um, in fact, uh, in uh, the years just before I was born, uh, had been active in the American Communist Party. Uh, he ceased to be active when he was chucked out of the New York City school system uh, by the uh, then teachers union that uh, purged uh, communists from its membership. Uh, and um, so I grew up in the shadow of uh, McCarthyism. Uh, my dad uh, changed careers, um, uh, always uh, um, regretted um, not continuing his activism, but um, found it impossible to, to do so in those circumstances. Um, and as I grew uh, into a sense of consciousness of um, uh, my family's past and and uh, the, the American um, political situation, um, I uh, became interested in trying to uh, figure, out, figure it all out. 
And so um, by the time I went to Columbia uh, in 1970, uh, I'm sorry, in 1966, uh, I um, was uh, already quite uh, politically conscious uh, and felt myself uh, being very much on the left. And of course, the the 60s, uh, particularly the latter part of the 60s, uh, was a period when um, that was by no means um, unusual. And so, as a uh, an undergraduate at Columbia, uh, a political science major, uh, I was uh, keen to um, uh, learn as much as I could about. Um, international relations, uh, the war in Vietnam uh, being uh, very much uh, in the forefront of everyone's consciousness. Uh, I joined the Students for Democratic Society. Um, I participated actively in the uh, Student Rebellion of Columbia in 68 um, and um, got to know some professors not only um, in the classroom but outside of it among whom I will single out Stephen, the young Stephen Cohen, um, who uh, was something of a role model for me now that I look back on it, although I don't think that concept had yet been invented. Um, and uh, uh, coming out of 68 uh, and its militants, um, I continued to remain fascinated with the Soviet Union as the fount of, you know, where it all started. Unlike many of my comrades who were into peasant studies and Latin America and uh, Southeast Asian studies and so forth. Um, and so I learned Russian um, uh, beginning as an undergraduate and um, um, decided to pursue graduate studies uh, thanks to a fellowship from Columbia, I uh, went to uh, St. Anthony's College, Oxford, for what I thought would be a year or two, um, but which turned out to be um, where I did my PhD. Uh, and that was partly because it was a convenient way of, of remaining outside of the United States uh, during a period when I thought that best. Um, I was a draft dodger, um, and um, so I, uh, I visited my parents only uh, very seldomly. Um, and after um, a couple of years of further language training and uh, studying um, as much as I could, more from fellow students, learning more from fellow students than my advisor, uh, I went on the U.S. Um, program IREX to Moscow um, and 1973-74 uh, uh, and I pursued a dissertation uh, that had to do with uh, the Russian bourgeoisie, particularly those involved with um, industry and war production during the First World War. Uh, and um, I uh, spent these 10 months in, in Moscow with a, with a Komendirovka to Leningrad. Um, I had met uh, my future wife in Finland the year before, and uh, we got married, uh, so that 
that seemed to be the only way she could accompany me on the exchange program. Um, we came back. Um, I uh, defended the dissertation in 1975 and... Um, uh, Took up a position in far off Australia, um, which continued to keep me outside of the United States, uh, but also uh, was one of the very few jobs available in a field that uh, had really re- quite radically downsized uh, by the mid seventies. Hey, can I ask you a question really quick? Because your your biography is fascinating in and of itself. Were you staying out of the United States for legal reasons or just out of political preference? Um, a little bit of both. That is, I wasn't sure that what my legal status was, mm-hmm. um, but I certainly didn't miss um, things uh, in the United States. I see. Um, so um, uh, it wasn't until 1983, although I'll, I'll come back to the intervening years, that I returned to the United States for good. Um, I went to uh, Melbourne, where I taught at La Trobe University from 1976 to 1983. Um, It was, on reflection, a a good way of learning how to teach Russian history. I had a a lot of young um, and very enthusiastic colleagues. Um, I began doing scholarship there in a serious way. As far off as it was, I did get some leave time to travel to... Uh, the Soviet Union, and also to the United States for um, research purposes. Uh, and um, But after a certain amount of time, beyond the sort of three, four years that I had assumed I would be, be there, it, it really started to get uh, oppressively far away. Uh, that is both from uh, my family in the United States as well as anything to do with Russia. Right, I can imagine. Yes, and and I and I'll add this is this is before there was anything known as email or <laughs> uh, or Skype, uh, and um, uh, I remember fax machines had just come in at this point, so that was that was a, a tenuous uh, link. Uh, and so in 1983, um, I accepted this uh, offer from Michigan State. Um, I had been shortlisted at one or one or two places the previous couple of years, um, but this time there was a real offer, and um, I accepted it with enthusiasm. Came uh, here as I talked to you from East Lansing, um, and um, and have remained ever since. Um, in terms of uh, uh, the the focus of my research, uh, by the time I uh, came to uh, Michigan, uh, I had moved into the Soviet period, which um, uh, perhaps uh, pre- previous um, guests of yours have, have touched on this, but up until the late 70s or early 1980s, believe it or not, um, it was almost uh, impossible to be considered a genuine historian and to work on the Soviet period. Um, uh, archival access for the Soviet period being so difficult to obtain, um, many historians uh, uh, felt there was a certain lack of legitimacy um, among Russianists who might 
dare uh, consider themselves historians. Right, and for and for you and, and others of some others of your generation, also the the whole question of social history was considered impossible. That's correct. That's correct. I remember a big breakthrough coming in uh, 1980 when uh, I uh, went to the uh, World Congress on whatever it was called then, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, which was held in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, West Germany, and there encountered all kinds of people doing essentially exactly what I had begun to do, which was Soviet labor history. And these included um, Don Filzer and... um, uh, people from Germany itself uh, and a couple of other Brits. Um, uh, and um, I began to hear about Hiroaki Koromiya, then a graduate student uh, at Princeton. Uh, and, you know, it seemed in recollection to happen all of a sudden uh, that there was this cohort of people uh, who were uh, doing Soviet labor history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I mean, I think the thrust of that was the discovery that, you know, the kind of, uh, the kind of explanations of, uh, labor and its, uh, organization and, uh, remuneration and, um, identification that we had gotten from Soviet sources, um, didn't uh didn't didn't stand up to our um investigations uh into uh the kinds of sources that had long existed and been available but were not not uh but hadn't been looked at very carefully i have in mind things like the harvard interview project um uh which uh, goes by another title and is now available online and you know is a, a very useful source for all kinds of purposes. Um, so even Soviet newspapers, um, one could glean certain things from that, um, that hadn't, uh, you know, hadn't been paid attention to. And of course, the Smolensk archive, which uh, was a gold mine for those are for researchers as yourself. Exactly, the Smolensk archive as well. Um, and so uh, several of us, I guess your advisor as well, uh, by this point, your former advisor, Arch Getty, uh, had um, had begun to uh, to make use of these sources and come up with with you know quite radically different understandings of um, you know the social bases uh, of Soviet power, uh, and um, I think you know Sheila Fitzpatrick's. Uh, analysis or reflections um, of that period are on the mark in the sense that generally we we were animated by the question of what was uh, what was the social support what was the nature of the social support for uh, the Stalinist project. Let me ask you a question about the, that his, as as a participant in that the the so called revisionists in the in the eighties. You know, now twenty some years later, or actually now thirty years later, one should say. Um, where do you? How do you? When you look back on the work you guys were doing, and in terms of establishing social history in, in of Soviet Russia, and in reflection to what's been done since the archives have opened, where do you evaluate that body of work that you guys did? Uh, it's a question I have asked myself many times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. what is your legacy? Let me put it to you this way. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I look at it as as a phase in the uh, in the evolution of uh, Western understandings of Soviet history, uh, a, a phase that broke through this, you know, rather um, rather u- unilinear uh, view of of the Soviet. Uh, regime um, proceeding according to its own lights and on the basis of its own, you know, ideologically driven uh, agenda. Uh, and um, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, of course, to some extent, uh, some of the assertions that were made concerning social support or, or to take some of the views that you know, Art, Arch, for example, used to represent, although I want to come back to a, a distinction that I would make between his work and, and mine, for example, um, uh, you know, about, about um, uh, that uh, uh, Stalin was uh, um, dependent on uh, coalitions and not entirely in control and, and um, almost uh, defeated at, at certain points in, in, in the fulfillment of his agenda. I think, you know, there are certain, certain um, of those kinds of things that, that one would want to um, amend, if not correct. Um, but uh, uh, it's not that it's not that the sort of post-revisionist wave has obliterated uh, what we did um, so much as uh, I would say expanded um, the the um, purview of social history into you know into other other realms. You know, I mean, I look at. I look at I look at the Foucault revolution, if you will, pretty much in the same way. It 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 didn't so much uh, overturn or or make uh, um, redundant, uh, you know, what had been a dominant sort of Marxist perspective of a previous generation so much as enrich it, enriched it. And as a as a, a social historian, and I, I think you would still describe yourself as such, and certainly Cars for Comrades speaks to social history. Uh, where mm-hmm. do you evaluate social history in, in Russian studies today? I think um, I, I I would say that there's still a lot of it to do, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you know whereas the temporal focus has moved uh, forward, um, or the, let's say the you know the proverbial cutting edge of of Soviet history uh, has now reached if uh, the Khrushchev era, if not even beyond. Um, I, I I think uh, uh, the uh, the social dimensions of 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 the Soviet experience uh, you know are are there to to be written mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, I mean, just to cite one example um, from work I'm currently doing that um, we can get back to later on, uh, very, very little has been written about one of the major uh, processes, the major sort of social phenomena of the second half of, of the Soviet period. I'm speaking of uh, the, the rural to urban migration of the 60s and 70s. Right. Uh, beginning already in the 50s. Uh, I mean, this is a massive 
really fundamental change in it in a way no less significant than that which Misha Levin wrote about in terms of the ruralization of the cities in the 30s, albeit extended over a longer period of time and 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 not having quite the same uh, effect, but ha- but nonetheless an experience that involved millions and millions and that you know fundamentally changed the nature of uh, of the Soviet. Uh, Soviet society. Yeah, well, we'll get back to that. Um, as someone who, of course, as you well know, studies the 1920s, I, I would say that there's still, though everyone is migrating forward, I still think that there's a lot to be said for the 1920s. And sometimes I, I in my some moments, I lament the fact that there's been this exodus. Um, <laughs> but that's my own editorializing. Uh, let's move on to, to Cars for Comrades. Um, in a way, the book kind of flows from your, your um, work on Russian labor. Um, but how did you end up writing a book about the Soviet car? Well, um, I guess there were there, there were two impulses. Uh, um, one was having visited Russia uh, many times in the 1990s, noticing this explosion of uh, cars uh, on the streets of Moscow and other cities, and also um in staying with russians and uh just sort of listening to people talking uh being becoming aware of how frequently cars came up and how um you know that it seemed to be uh something to the effect of the kid who had not been allowed into the candy shop suddenly you know finding him or herself surrounded by the stuff um uh and also um thereby um uh, you know casting the my glance back to the soviet period discovering that actually cars were there as well but you know sort of hidden in plain view uh that 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 um it's uh, cars were not something that one tends to associate with with the soviet project um for good reason uh but that nonetheless or paradoxically therefore um they 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 were an important item and you can find that as i did in doing the research for cars for comrades in all kinds of places i mean in novels in films in songs in speeches by soviet leaders uh in you know memoirs etc just all over um, the other source of inspiration, and this relates back to the uh, discussion we were just having about Soviet labor history, um, was uh, my own weariness with um, what had become in the 90s and uh, to a large extent still remains the the dominant narrative of um, Soviet history as being one of uh, what I refer to uh, sort of uh, metaphorically as tears, um, oppression, violence, terror, um, a narrative especially uh, prominent and appropriate to accounts of the Stalin era. Uh, and of course, this was a period uh, of uh, my own research, uh, for the most part, um, and I longed to escape from it. And I longed for a subject that would um uh, encompass um the entirety of soviet history and uh 
also have an emphasis on the post-Stalin uh, decades. And, and it's interesting you chose the car because the car, of course, represents individuality, freedom, um, ide- you know, expression of identity. It's interesting that in an effort to move away from a history of tears, you pick something that really is emblematic of, of freedom. Well, uh, it, it is and it was, uh, but um, what I discovered uh, in uh, the course of doing the research for the book is that uh, that was not its only uh, symbolic uh, meaning or association. Um, that in fact, in the Soviet context, uh, cars uh, could have exactly the opposite meaning. Uh, and that stemmed from the fact that the overwhelming uh, majority of uh, four-wheeled vehicles that were produced, uh, because actually uh, trucks were much more numerous than cars, um, were state, state-owned uh, and, and were symbolic of state power. Uh, and uh, so you have um, uh, people in villages, for example, um, whenever a car would appear, assuming, quite rightly for the most part, that uh, it was some state official coming in to bother them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, cars were not something that were associated Certainly. with. Certainly. <laughs> or, um, as one encounters in... Um, uh, the uh, the uh, diary of uh, Nina Lugovskaya, which was published in English a few years ago as the diary of a Soviet schoolgirl, um, this uh, encounter with uh, with Stalin's uh, car being driven through the uh, Novodevichy Cemetery uh, at night in Moscow, and um, uh, you know, this kind of gothic uh, scene that she lays out, uh, as well as the, of course, um, well-known uh, descriptions of the so-called Black Mariahs uh, that uh, flew through the streets of Moscow and other cities during the, the terror uh, to round up people in the middle of the night. Yeah, so the car, is a, as you show, is, is a quite mixed thing. I mean, it's, it's um, we can't really impose our own as I did in, in my statement, kind of impose our, our own American ideas of what the car represents, since in Soviet Russia it's in a completely different context in terms of distribution and use, um, That's right. and et cetera. Um, so just to get on to the, the, the meat of the book, um, the first part you talk about the establishment of the Soviet car industry, particularly in factories in Moscow, Nizhny Novgorod, and the city of Tagliati. Um, why are these three cities important to for understanding the Soviet car industry? Well, I use these three, and of course there were uh, uh, other places where cars and trucks were produced, but but these seem to me to be uh, the most significant in that uh, they each represented uh, a moment or phase in um, the Soviet car industry, its relationship to uh, sort of global car production. Um, so we start with Moscow and Amo, which uh, in the early 30s was uh, renamed uh, Zis, uh, Zavod Imeni Stalina. And then uh, in the uh, mid-50s, um, Zil, um, once, uh, of course, Stalin uh, became um, 
the uh, target of uh, Khrushchev's um, secret speech and um, uh, had his name started to be replaced. Uh, Zis uh, took on the name of the former director of the of the factory, uh, Lihachov. Um, so uh, this is where the first Soviet cars uh, were built, and uh, they were built in um, appropriately enough uh, Proletarsky Rayon, the proletarian district of Moscow, uh, a, a highly industrialized area. Um, and so a lot of the chapter uh, actually is about um, that district and uh, the working and living conditions uh, around the factory, but also about um, the, um, the connections with uh, the American car industry uh, that were uh, begun to be made towards the end of the 1920s. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, each chapter, of course, goes through the entirety of the uh, Soviet period. Uh, so I follow the story of, of uh, Amozis Zil up through um, the post-Soviet years. Uh, but um, in terms of sort of significant moments, uh, the, the, the book then shifts to uh, Gaz, uh, the Gorky automobile factory in Nizhny Novgorod, um, whose moment, as it were, comes with the uh, building of the factory thanks to um, – a uh, an agreement with uh, the Ford Motor Company, um, which supplied uh, the technology and um, a lot of the uh, engineering and uh, and uh, technical um, uh, expertise, um, and uh, so it uh, th- so that chapter uh, is about the setting up of the factory, um, the contributions that were made to it by uh, Americans, among whom were the Ruther brothers, uh, Walter uh, and Victor, um, who uh, uh, in the 1950s assumed the leadership of the United Automobile Workers Union. Um, And um, uh, the experience of of this factory uh, through the war years when it was bombed uh, and um, uh, it's a sort of golden age in the 50s and 60s when the sort of emblematic uh, Soviet uh, vehicles, uh, the Volga, uh, the Pobieda, the Volga, and uh, the uh, Chaika were, uh, were uh, produced there. And then on to Toljati, um, which uh, uh, is a city on the Volga named after an Italian communist um, that uh, two years after its renaming uh, as Togliati uh, was chosen as the site for the building of this giant factory um, based on fiat uh, technology. And so in 1966, um, this factory started to be erected and by 1970 was turning out little fiat clones, which in Russia uh, came to be known as Zhiguli. Uh, and when they exported them, were known as Ladas. Uh, and this was a city that was an entirely new discovery for me. I, I visited uh, twice, um, and uh, the first time, just sort of on a on a whim from Moscow, I walked into a travel agency and said, "Get me to Toliati." Um, and the second time for a conference, um, 
And um, actually, the uh, the company, the the Vaz or Aftovaz as it's called today, um, uh, was very uh, hospitable uh, to me and to my interest. And um, um, I owe considerable thanks to them for uh, the resources that uh, were made available to me. Oh, let's talk about uh, Toliati uh, for a bit because you, you describe it. I mean, one of the things with, with auto production, of course, is the cities and the, the conditions, the working and living conditions around them. And, and for Toliati, you describe it as a third-generation Soviet city. Um, mm. What does that mean and how does that make it different than, from previous so-called socialist cities? Uh, it, it was uh, a city that uh, was um, built uh, all of a piece. Um, that is to say, that part of of a pre-existing city. There was there was uh, something in the way of a city already uh, with considerable pharmaceutical uh, industries uh, as its economic base. But but um, associated with the car factory was built an entirely new. You could say city or uh, part of uh, Toliati that uh, was called the the auto district, auto factory district, and this was uh, a third generation Soviet city in the sense that it was designed all of a piece and built on the basis of a kind of integrated plan, um, very much derived from uh, uh, cosmopolitan modernist international modernist. Uh, principles very much indebted to uh, Le Corbusier, uh, and um, uh, this this meant that um, uh, each uh, that there were micro districts, um, each of which uh, had calculated for it uh, so many uh, shops, so so many steps that the residents would have to take to get to. Uh, the tram stop and the library and uh, uh, you know uh, so it was it was very much a kind of planned uh, city um, the result of which um, is quite alienating <laughs> oh, one could imagine <laughs> <laughs> quite uh, quite sort of overwhelmingly um, hostile to you know what I think uh, generally, urbanists today regard as, as kind of necessary ingredients for habitability. You know, sort of uh, cafes and street life, and uh, uh, you know, a kind of uh, uh, coziness uh, that uh, people are able to carve out of of the urban environment. Uh, it was that much more difficult to do in Toliati and other cities of its nature. Now let, let's talk about uh, something that that is throughout the book, which is the influence of the United States. Um, what role did did the Soviet fascination with the United States, American industrial efficiency, and the American automobile uh, itself factor into the development of the Soviet car industry? Uh, it's an enormous role. I mean, it's uh, you know to turn to turn uh, Marx's uh, famous phrase about communism uh, being the specter that haunts uh, uh, Europe. Um, you, you know, in a sense, the United States and its car industry and car culture really haunt uh, the Soviet uh, experience of automobiles. Uh, and this goes back to something we were talking about a moment ago. I mean, even during the '30s. When you know there were these quite negative associations with cars, one also finds 
kids, um, uh, you know, yearning for the sight of an American automobile uh, and, um, you know, uh, treasuring pictures of them that would occasionally appear in Soviet publications. Um, and, and that, that, that continued, uh, on through the subsequent decades. Um, but, uh, so the United States, uh, at Henry Ford, uh, exercised enormous influence on the Soviet imagination. Uh, Henry Ford is, is a, is a fascinating character in terms of both positive and negative associations. Um, there's the, the famous, um, a trip of Mayakovsky to, to Detroit, uh, that, uh, I refer to in the book, uh, you know, where he's, uh, sort of, uh, contemptuous of the, you know, the pace uh, at which workers are forced to work and their exhaustion at the end of the day, so much so that, you know, the divorce rate is so high in Detroit because wives can't get their husbands to uh, pay attention to them. Um, and, and yet there is an unmistakable admiration. Uh, and this comes out in in a lot of the writing uh, of others, including this, uh, I think I refer to him as sort of poet of of Soviet industrialization, uh, Boris Agap- Agapov, uh, who, uh, you know, watches the construction of the assembly line at, uh, at Gaz, uh, thanks to Ford technology, uh, you know, and has these sort of dreams of, you know, cars rolling down this assembly line, one every so, so many seconds. And, uh, and it is, it is this sort of techno dream that is derived from the American experience. In a way, it seems that the Soviets connect economic success and economic progress, similar to how in the United States a car represents the same thing. There seems to be a convergence of of viewpoints on this around the car. Yes. uh, Well, in a sense, you know, even more so in in terms of car production in the Soviet Union, such that, uh, you know, in terms of the official culture or what could be said to be uh, car culture – it wasn't so much, you know, the the joys of driving uh, a car or being on the open road, but rather the cars coming off the assembly line uh, automatically, as it were, uh, that you know that that um, that that were that were celebrated. Now, when talking about cars, and we'll get to the the actual car itself in a little bit, but you also have to talk about roads, and Russia is known for. Uh, having horrible roads. Um, uh, what are some of the problems that Russia faces when it comes to constructing and maintaining roads? And, and how did this prevent a problem for, say, the proliferation of cars? Uh, well, uh, weather and climate uh, are, uh, you know, a, a lethal combination um, such that there are these periods of the times of the year, uh, the the fall and and spring, um, when um, even to this day uh, some roads are impassable. This is the notorious Rasputitsa, um, the mud um, phenomenon, um, and uh, the uh, uh, difficulty of of constructing roads and maintaining them uh, owes uh, a lot of it to 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 uh, to these factors. Um, but additionally, um, uh, there was nothing 
in the way of uh, gasoline tax or uh, allocations of federal funding such as existed in the United States. Um, and, and, uh, for lo- but what there was was a, uh, a, a perceived surplus of, of labor such as to make uh, the so-called trudovaya povinast, the, the labor duty, um, the, uh, the, the solution. So throughout uh, the uh, Stalin era, um, most road maintenance was done on the basis of uh, uh, a, a uh, labor obligation that was imposed on uh, rural inhabitants um, such that it was six days a year, uh, could be more, could be less, depends on whether they brought their horses or not, uh, etc. And if I remember, if my if my memory serves me, this is a this is a holdover from the Tsarist period. It, well, it's a revival of mm-hmm. of of a uh, that's right a policy that was pursued in Tsarist times, and you know I should add was not unique to Russia. Uh, but, um, but certainly, uh, was kind of reinvented in the Soviet period and, and, and applied on a scale that, um, I don't think was matched anywhere else, at least not, not in the 20th century. Uh, and, um, uh, this was where the Society for the Construction and Improvement of Roads, uh, came into its own, this Aftador, um, which was one of these, supposedly volunteer societies um, that uh, existed in the 20s and 30s um, because its task was to uh, to mobilize and popularize road improvement with competitions and prizes and auto rallies um, uh, organized uh, for that purpose. Talk about actually talk about these these road rallies um, because you, you you deal with them at some length. Um, what were these exactly, and 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 how did they draw attention to Soviet roadlessness? Well, uh, one one of the discoveries I made in the course of this research was was uh, how it how could it have been possible that I didn't notice. Uh, the coverage of these when I had been reading Pravda, for example, for other purposes, because uh, um, whenever there was a, a major uh, Aftoprobieg, or uh, I translate it as rally, but it's kind of like a test run of sorts. Um, I mean, it, it's not a rally in the sense that we have uh, rallies in this country and even more so in some other parts of the world uh, that are kind of regular annual events and um, um, where there's a lot of uh, competition and points and, you know, it's a whole kind of NASCAR equivalent, I suppose. Um, but uh, it, it rather uh, was organized to uh, popularize uh, the uh, uh, new vehicles that the Soviet Union had put out or to draw attention to uh, the necessity for building better roads or roads where they didn't exist previously, um, and which, um, in terms of the major ones, you know, had daily coverage by correspondents who went along uh, for the ride, uh, and were were really kind of um, the equivalent of adventure stories. I mean, these were these were kind of expeditions. 
um, that that uh, you know uh, were intended to sort of fire the the imagination of of their readers, um, um, and 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 were I might add lampooned uh, famously by Ilf and Petrov. Uh huh. Yes. <laughs> Uh, in in uh, the little golden calf, um, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to convey the the humor, uh, but uh, it, it it is very funny. <laughs> well, let's turn to the actual car itself. Um, what were Soviet cars like in terms of their design, their quality, and their usability? And uh, where did they draw their inspir- Where did car makers draw or designers draw their informa- inspiration from? Uh, Soviet cars are notoriously, um, difficult to drive, uh, lack, uh, maneuverability, um, break down easily, um, and otherwise are no fun. Uh, <laughs> however, um, partly, partly because of those things, uh, or, uh, certainly helping to contextualize uh, those characteristics um, it, uh, are are certain qualities such as uh, durability. Um, they last, um, and um, the ease with which they can be repaired. And I think this is a key. Actually, it's true not only of uh, of uh, Soviet cars in general, but cars throughout the the Eastern Bloc. Uh, that um, they are uh, built and uh, sold or distributed uh, with the uh, understanding on the part of those who acquire them that they are going to need to know how to repair those cars. And so they come usually with, you know, repair kits and sometimes tools uh, to, uh, to do that. Um, and um, so... Uh, now, of course, that's that's uh, largely in reference to uh, the cars that became available for purchase at the at the upper levels. You have the limos, you have the you know the the sort of the state on wheels, as I refer to them, uh, the the, the Zil uh, limos, the Chaika, um, that uh, were inspired by and almost uh, exact copies of certain Western. Sort of luxury cars, the Packard, um, uh, the Cadillac, uh, and such like. Now, one of the things about cars, of course, in the Soviet Union is who can acquire them and how does one acquire them. Now, just speaking for individual car owners, which, in, as you say, in, in the mid 1960s, car production turns more towards passenger cars. It right. becomes more of a consu- for consumers. Um, right. How did someone acquire a car in the Soviet Union? And I say acquire because it's more of access than of of actual purchase. Right. Um, Well, uh, one purchased a car through one's uh, trade union and one got on a waiting list uh, as early as possible. Uh, But the the significant uh, um, obstacle was the necessity of putting down a hefty down payment. Uh, and there's no, there was no credit here. Um, you know, one put down a down payment and upon, uh, notice that the car would be ready to be picked up, uh, one had to come up with, with the balance. And how long would it take for someone to get a car? Uh, well, the average, uh, kept on creeping up, 
so it was about five to six years in the 60s and 70s and got to be about eight years by the 80s. And this, this was despite increasing car production. So uh, there was no shortage of demand. <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I argue in the book that demand is not really uh, an operative category, that uh, there was desire. And um, uh, only a small proportion of those who desired had the opportunity or you know, got the turn to, to acquire a car. But of course, there were there were ways of coping with that too. The the, the thriving secondhand car market uh, was one, um, and so cars lasted longer than they were anticipated to last. Uh, and this is another another aspect of Soviet car culture. It was that uh, you know one one not only looked after one's car, but one cherished. Uh, the opportunity to have one and and spent time with the car and with others uh, who owned cars that um, you know I argue is a, a very important uh, dimension of uh, male sociability mm-hmm. uh, you know that that really uh, was an important um, way in which men, uh, kind of reconfirmed their masculinity. Mm-hmm. And would you argue that this was uh, in in this kind of state versus society binary? If we just kind of play with that, um, is this a way for people to kind of sociable socialize with themselves and kind of organize themselves outside the purview of the state? Would you go so far as to suggest that? Um, although I'm uncomfortable with the state society binary, uh, I would say that th- that cars did uh, constitute a site of of uh, of private space, um, and I think I even refer to them as kind of alternative living rooms, um, uh, so that uh, the garages uh, where they were um, they were housed, uh, if 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 there were garages, uh, the the courtyards uh, where many of them uh, were kept, um, uh, these became uh, and, and of course the interiors of the cars themselves uh, were were sites of, of of privacy. In fact, I this was another thing I noticed in the nineties when I started to to be aware of uh, of cars in 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 Russia, uh, how many people simply sat in their cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, not well, not in tra- not in traffic, but you know, just hanging out. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed the same thing, and, and of course, this makes sense if you considered the fact that you know there's a shortage of living space in terms of access to housing. I mean, people exactly. the private space within one's apartment is limited, and this is why I think you know when you go in Russia, a lot more people are out, especially young people, are outside in in these apartment courtyards. Um, they're outside in parks, and then I've also noticed this uh, just hanging out in cars too. Yes, uh, although in Soviet times, uh, very few young people—if we're talking about people in their teens or right. early twenties—had uh, cars. Yes. Uh, if they if they did, it was through their parents. Um, but um, there, so therefore, there there really is no Soviet equivalent that I was able to discover to you know kind of youth 
culture associated with cars. Yeah, I think that is actually developing now to some extent. I, I, I believe so too. Yeah, I, I notice a lot more young people have cars now than well, more people in general. Anyone who goes to Moscow now, you can't escape it. It's just unbelievable the amount of traffic and the amount of cars. Um, one of the questions that you seem to try to answer is whether there's anything particularly Soviet about the Soviet car. Um, what is your answer? Did you find an answer to that question? And if so, what is it? I would say it, it, there is no one thing that uh, that made the Soviet car Soviet. Um, part of it is the, uh, the – I spoke about earlier – the adulation of the assembly line and you know the production – values associated with cars, um, which uh, was at its height under Stalin. It continued into the 60s so that when when uh, Vaz was being built and then started to, uh, to go uh, into production, um, there still is this, uh, you know, this sort of techno worship associated with, with the car. Um, so I'd say that's, that's one thing. Uh, the other, though, is um, this uh, again the kind of multivalence of uh, of meanings uh, or associations with cars, such that it's there is unquestionably uh, the association of cars with freedom. Um, and by the way, not only cars, but you know, I think I quote from a novel by Anatoly Rybakov a passage in which a truck driver is going down the road and he's you know, sort of bursting into song practically, celebrating the open road and putting your your the pedal to the metal and, you know, this freedom, etc. So, you know, just being being out there on the road in your car uh, is definitely part of the Soviet experience, but also its opposite. Uh, so, you know, there is this... Um, uh, this uh, plethora, this uh, sort of continuum of associations with cars that I think extends well beyond where it, it exists in, for example, this country. And also, it, you can see it continue, too, with, um, in post-Soviet Russia with the blue lights on top of cars or the association with BMWs uh-huh. with power, too. Yes, yes. Well, there's, there's also you know, a, a kind of um, know, patriotic or nationalistic um, dimension to to what happens especially in the post-soviet period with the the influx of mercedes and the association of people driving them with you know uh, illegal sources of income and you know trujia you know sort of foreignness uh, as opposed to you know us uh lot of driving uh you know sort of law-abiding uh citizens uh and and so I mean there are lots of these uh, even in Soviet times uh, jokes that pit the Mercedes against the humble Zaporozhets, this little tiny um, rattle trap of a car. You know, it's kind of like the hare and the tortoise. And uh, the irony, though, now it, it, especially since the recent protests in the Far East about the hike in taxes on foreign cars. Um, now, because the desire for access to cheaper cars, now you get protests against making foreign cars more expensive. I mean, this became a touchy subject for the Russian government in the last two years or so. It's been fascinating to see how car owners have come to be, you know, like a social category uh, with, with, with a certain degree of activism 
associated with them and a, a kind of pressure group. Um, yeah, exactly. What is the status of the Russian car industry today? Because if you go to Moscow now, um, which of course, you know, as anyone said, Moscow isn't Russia, but they, it's also the place that has the most cars. You see f- more foreign cars today than you see Russian cars. Uh, what, what is the Russian in- car industry today? Well, uh, some of those foreign cars are actually assembled in Russia. So, so Ford and uh, Toyota and a lot of foreign auto companies have set up assembly plants in Russia. Um, there's a big Ford plant outside of, of Petersburg, um, for example. Um, others are imported, as uh, you were mentioning a moment ago, uh, or certainly in the 90s, were being, um, were being smuggled in uh, from uh, Japan. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, through, uh, through Finland, uh, from Germany. Um, but, uh, uh, there still are cars made in the, in, in Russia that are, you know, Russian made and, and, and they are, um, you know, the, the current day version of the Lada. Uh, so Avtovaz is, um, now the sole maker of passenger cars for uh, domestic uh, consumption, um, but they're 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 relatively um, downscale. They're humble. They're simple. Um, they're not flashy, uh, and they're affordable. One of the things I have noticed in in Russia in in terms of cars is that the the Russian government has made a commitment to try to you know. Um, Reestablish the Russian car industry, and even go through these, make these gestures like now Putin no longer will ride around in a Mercedes; he'll ride right. around in the Zeal. Right. Um, so there is this connection, as you say, with a kind of patriotism. Well, and indeed, I wanted I wanted to add that uh, actually, since since the book was uh, was uh, published or at least completed, um, uh, Avtovaz has been. Um, uh, if not entirely nationalized, um, then certainly heavily indebted to the the Russian government, which I think owns about forty percent uh, of uh, of the company, uh, and another forty percent or so is um, is Renault. Uh, so, you know, the extent to which this is a, a company that is identifiably Russian is uh, somewhat somewhat uh, questionable. Um, but the Russian government definitely has tried to subsidize uh, its uh, its car industry. Well, I thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating topic, especially since cars play such a big role in the American imagination. It's nice that you've devoted uh, an, you know, a book to the car and the Soviet imagination. Um, just to wrap up the interview, uh, what are you working on now? I, um, having written a book about uh, auto mobility have plunged into a very large topic on mobility uh, in the form of migration. Uh, And uh, with uh, my uh, colleague, Leslie Mock, who is a migration historian, albeit of uh, the rest of Europe, uh, I'm doing a project on um, migration within uh, Russian political space from the 18th century to the present. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that is a very, very large topic. <laughs> well, uh, the the main theme or uh, argument, I would say, is that um, one cannot really understand Russian history 
without appreciating the extent to which the 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 extraordinary if not unique extent to which um that history is uh the movement of people either uh because they um moved of their own accord or were moved mm-hmm. uh and and that we 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 have tended to uh underappreciate this uh the this point right and i think we have i think part of it especially for the 20th century is that i think we over um we, we put too much power in the effectiveness of internal passports and uh, uh, controlling movement of of peoples in russia exactly Yes. Well, I think thank you very much. Uh, thanks again for the interview. It's quite interesting. Thank you. I've been speaking with Louis Siegelbaum about his book, Cars for Comrades, The Life of the Soviet Automobile. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Charles King about his book, Odessa, Genius and Death in the City of Dreams. Until then, goodbye. Денег все не соберем.